Would you join with me in a word of prayer before we begin? Father, we come to You this morning because we need Your Word. It is life. It is a refreshing drink of water. It is sweeter than honey. It is more profitable than all the gold and silver in this world added together. So help us, Father. Help us to see You. Help us to learn much from Your Word. We pray this in the name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 1053. It's towards the back of your book. 2 Peter chapter 2. This morning we will be looking at the remainder of 2 Peter 2. We're going to start in the middle of verse 10 and go all the way to verse 22. 2 Peter chapter 2. As you're turning to 2 Peter chapter 2, consider what is taking place inside you right now. You have already taken at least one breath since you started turning to 2 Peter. And if you haven't, you should probably take a breath now. After you inhaled that fresh air, you exhaled a combination of carbon and oxygen back into the air. We call that carbon dioxide or CO2. It's a relatively tame compound. We, we use it for all sorts of things in our everyday lives. However, there is a similar compound that is much more dangerous, even toxic to humans. Carbon monoxide, or CO, is an odorless and tasteless gas that can silently affect a person without them even realizing it. What makes carbon monoxide so much more toxic than carbon dioxide? Its fundamental composition lies at the heart of its toxicity. It's the fact that it is carbon monoxide, not carbon dioxide. Just a minor difference of one oxygen molecule in its composition takes a relatively harmless gas and turns it into a silent killer. That subtle change in composition takes a balanced, stable gas and turns it into an extremely unstable, dangerous gas. Carbon monoxide is toxic. It's dangerous. So what do we do? Well, many of you probably have detectors in your house that will alert you, that will signal you, hey, there's a problem. There's carbon monoxide in your house. Why do you do that? Because you don't want to be taken hostage by carbon monoxide. You don't want carbon monoxide to sneak into your house and affect you without you being alerted to its presence. Well, as we come to 2 Peter 2, Peter has a concern about something toxic in the life of the church. So far in 2 Peter 2, Peter has talked about false teachers, the reality of their presence, 
the precedence of false prophets in Israel that lead to this idea that anytime there are the people of God, there will be false teachers, false prophets who will be seeking to undermine and undercut what God has said. But the other thing that we've seen from Peter so far in this text is that false teachers are facing an imminent destruction. That is, their destruction is looming and it is real and it will happen. Peter encourages the church to have nothing to do with the false teachers. And so in our text this morning, he is to some extent setting up a false teacher detector for the Christians. For you and I. So that we will be alerted and we will not be overcome by false teaching. As we come to 2 Peter 2, Peter's central idea that we're going to see in, in the end of verse 10 all the way to verse 22 is this. Christians must be careful to avoid the destabilizing effects of false teachers and cling to the true Word of God. Peter's big idea in this text is that Christians must be careful to avoid the destabilizing effects of false teachers and cling to the true Word of God. There are two points in our text, two ways, two units of organization that Peter employs as we consider toxic false teachers. The first is in verses 10-16. through And we see in these verses the toxic character of the false teacher. The toxic character of the false teacher. Follow along as I read 2 Peter 2, beginning in verse 10. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. But these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime." They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the righteous way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. In these verses, we see the toxic character of false teachers. Up to up, up in this point in chapters two, in chapter two, verses four through ten, Peter has shown two massive realities that, about God's rule and reign over the earth. In verses nine and ten, we see the ability of God to deliver and preserve the righteous from trials. And we also see the ability of God to reserve the unrighteous for just judgment. Right on the heels of Peter's twofold emphasis of the mercy and justice of God, Peter doubles down on the false teachers. We read at the beginning of verse 10 
that God reserves the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Those are the people that Peter has in his crosshairs as we begin now with the rest of verse 10 down to verse 16. These false teachers are characterized by walking according to the flesh, and there are two sins that are their trademarks, their M.O., they're a moral lifestyle, and they despise authority. So as we consider the toxic character of the false teachers, Peter expounds on the brash arrogance of the false teachers and their despising of God-given authority, and he uncovers and exposes the rampant lust and immorality of the false teachers. Did you catch all of the they and the these and the there and the them in verses 10 through 16? Look at your text and see them with me. We see at the end of verse 10, they are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Or if you're reading an ESV, you might have it translated glorious ones. Peter's point here is that they speak judgment on those that not even angels will speak judgment on. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Verse 12, but these, like natural brute beasts made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption. These first marks point to the blind irrationality and arrogance of the false teachers. They don't honor God's authority. They go beyond it. They are marked by fleshly instincts rather than knowing and being grounded in the truth. That's what Peter commanded his audience, the churches that he's writing to. That's what he commanded them all the way back in chapter 1, verse 12, that they would be established in the truth. These false teachers are not established in the truth. They are not grounded in the truth. But he continues... Verse 13, they are spots and blemishes. Their own corruption will cause them to perish. Did you notice that at the end of verse 12? They will utterly perish in their own corruption. Verse 13, they receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. In other words, they don't reserve sinfulness for when it gets dark outside. They will be more than willing to sin any time of day. As a matter of fact, they do it constantly, 24-7. Even when some people might wait until the darkness to engage in sinful practice, these men are so in your face about their immoral lifestyle that they will do it constantly all throughout the day. They're not ashamed to be engaging in their sinful practices during the daytime. They count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They're spots and blemishes. Spots and blemishes primarily to the church. Because notice that in, these pas- in this passage, they are in the church still. They're amongst the people of the church. So they are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions. Notice this, while they feast with you. They feast with Peter's audience. The false teachers give the impression that they're acceptable and still participate in the life of the church. 
However, we read, they are constantly partaking in or carousing in evil activity all throughout the day. We read next that they have eyes full of adultery and cannot cease from sin. They entice unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices or greed. The end of verse 14, Peter calls them accursed children. Verse 15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray. The false teachers have lost their moral compass. So, Peter concludes, they are following the way of Balaam. And how does he describe Balaam here? He's the one who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Balaam was ruled by greed and fleshly instincts. And what does Peter point out for us in verse 16? He was rebuked for his iniquity. Who or what rebuked his iniquity? Peter tells us, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. In other words, Peter here is saying even an animal had more sense than Balaam. He was acting so irrationally, so unrestrained that a donkey corrected him? What is Peter's point in writing all of these words about the false teachers? I mean, why does he wait? Why does he take so much time? Or we might even be willing to say that he wastes his time. I mean, come on, get to the point, Peter. Why are you, why are you telling us all this stuff about the false teachers? Okay, we know they're bad. But why are, you, why are you spending six verses talking about this? I mean, Peter would surely be viewed in our day as a narrow-minded, overreactive person who made mountains out of molehills, right? But consider this. If the false teachers in these churches are as bad as Peter indicates they are, then Peter has a pastoral obligation to demonstrate that to his audience. If they are as toxic as he claims they are, as he lays them out to be, then he must tell the church about these things. Why? Because these false teachers are enticing unstable souls. They're seeking to deceive those in the church. Keep in mind that Peter wants to establish his readers. If you look with me at 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, the, the very end of 2 Peter, you'll read these words, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is Peter's pastoral concern as he's writing to his audience, as he is writing these words for our benefit this morning. The point of these verses is to show how destructive and repulsive the false teachers are so that the church will avoid them and the unsettling they bring. Peter is writing because he wants to highlight these people. He wants to highlight what they're like. Who are these people at their core? 
Is there any sense in which we can say, yeah, but they're genuinely nice people? Peter slams the door on that. No, there is nothing good about these people. You cannot have these people in your life. You need to avoid them. You need to push them away because they are trying to unsettle you. They're trying to do the very thing that I'm encouraging you not to do. I want you to be settled in what Christ has done. I want you to be eager for His coming. And they're undermining that. So what can we learn from verses 10-16? through 16? The toxic character of these false teachers. I think there's several things for us to consider here. It is critical that we be alert and on the lookout for false teaching. This, this kind of goes hand in glove with what Pastor Harris talked about last week in combating counterfeit Christianity. We did not sit down at the beginning of the year and, and plan out to cover those things in overlapping subsequent weeks. But in God's good providence, there is a lot of overlap between what Pastor Harris covered in 1 Timothy 1 and what we see here in 2 Peter 2. It's critical that we be on alert and on the lookout for false teaching. In our day, the Christian church in America is loaded with teaching that does not accord with sound doctrine. Parents, be careful what you allow your kids to read and listen to. Someone is teaching your kids their worldview. Is it you? That's something that that I am moved with. Because I have the opportunity to work with kids and to work with the teens. Moms and dads, how are you grounding your home in sound doctrine? How can we as a church help the young kids in our church, the teenagers in our church, be grounded, steadfast in what the Bible teaches? Older saints, do you fill your mind with sound doctrine? Maybe you no longer have kids at home. Maybe you're retired. You have a little bit more time on your hands and you avail yourself of religious teaching. Are you filling your mind with sound doctrine? Do you listen to and read books from teachers and preachers that teach the Bible? I think another application for us from this text is how important it is for us to bring our Bibles when we come to church. One of the reasons that it's important to bring your Bible and have it open in the service is so that you can see if what is being taught lines up with what the text says. Kids especially, be aware of people who tell you that God said something, but don't encourage you to see what God said in your Bible. Be aware, kids, of, hey, God says this, and you ask, where does God say that? Ah, it doesn't worry. You don't have to look it up. That should give us pause. If you're retired or you find yourself with lots of time in your leisure, do you allow your theology to be shaped by news and social media more than Scripture? Do captions or pictures encapsulate your theology better than God's Word? 
There's another thing that we see here in this text, though, because there is a connection to what Christ has done. Notice the motivation for Peter to warn about false teachers is their forthcoming destruction at the final judgment. He says that several times. These, like natural beasts, verse 12, made to be caught and destroyed... The end of verse 12, will utterly perish in their own corruption. They will receive the wages of unrighteousness. God knows how to reserve those people for judgment. Friends, there is coming a day when everyone will stand before God. He is the King. He has conquered anything and everything that stands in His path. Even death. We will either be delivered from judgment because of Christ's death on the cross, or we will be delivered over to eternal judgment and damnation. Are you prepared for that judgment? Would you be delivered from judgment or delivered to judgment? Would Christ spare you from judgment or would you be given over by God to judgment? In other words, have you trusted in Christ to forgive you of your sins, to become one of His children so that you are no longer under the curse of the law that we spoke of earlier this morning in Galatians 3? Christ offers salvation to be delivered from judgment and to have your sins forgiven. Friend, if you are here this morning and and you think to yourself, I would probably be in in the delivered to category. Delivered to judgment rather than delivered from judgment. Friend, can I encourage you? Come to Christ for salvation. Confess your sin. Trust in Him to save you from your sin. Experience the gift of salvation that God wants to give you. Verses 10 through 16 talk to us about the toxic character of the false teachers. But we also see in verses 17 through 22 the toxic enslavement of the false teachers. The toxic enslavement of the false teachers. Follow along as I begin reading at verse 17. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. In this toxic enslavement of the false teachers, there are two things that Peter highlights for us in verses 17 through 22. 
The desire of the false teachers to seek to enslave others is something that Peter highlights. And we see this in verses 17 and 18. There's some parallelism that Peter uses. Notice how he begins verse 17. These are wells without water. The beginning of verse 18. When they speak great swelling words of emptiness. The beginning of verse 19. They promise them liberty. In other words, they promise something from God, but they're a scam. They don't provide what they promise. What good is a well without water? What substance do clouds carried by a tempest have? They claim to carry something, but they've lost the baggage they're carrying. So as a result... They have a reservation. Verse 17, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. There again is their pending judgment and destruction. These are empty claims the false teachers are making. But just because their empty claims doesn't stop them from alluring others into their godless lives. Look at the, look at the beginning or look at the end of verse 18. They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. They're enslaved and they want to bring other people down with them. Well, how do they allure them? They allure them through sexual immorality and sinful living. So these false teachers, rather than encouraging people to follow God, the false teachers are encouraging them to the exact opposite. On the one hand, God has commanded them to be godly, to be righteous, to live for Christ, to abstain from sexual immorality and sinful living. And to add godly characteristics to their life. And what are the false teachers doing? They're saying, no, 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 no. Don't bother with any of that. This is better. This is where it's really at. But what the people don't realize is this promise of liberty is in fact the very thing That is enslaving them. Verse 19, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. Do you catch the irony there? There's an offer of freedom. You can be free. And imagine somebody offering you a claim for freedom while they are chained and shackled and tied up. Is that really freedom? And what Peter is doing is he's shining a light on that irony. Because to the people he's writing to, they need to see that. Unless they see the chains and the shackles and the enslavement and the bondage that the false teachers are actually engaging in, those claims of liberty actually sound appetizing. Is it easy to follow God? Is it easy to to do what He has commanded us to do? No. And so if somebody comes along and says, well, what if I told you you didn't actually have to do that and you could be free? That's going to catch your ear. And Peter here is seeking to protect you and I. That we would not be taken captive by these who promise liberty, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. 
we see the second emphasis then from verse 19 all the way through the end of verse 22 that they are enslaved by their own corruption. That is what is enslaving them. While they talk of the, while the talk of the false teachers is liberty and freedom, Peter tells us that they are really enslaved. The fact that they are slaves of corruption though speaks to what they truly are. Slaves of corruption. Children of disobedience. Objects of wrath. Those are those who are outside of Christ. Here, Paul is referencing the fact that they are truly unsaved. In verses 19 and 20, though, Peter draws a contrast with what he wrote earlier in 2 Peter 1 about those who have obtained like precious faith in Christ. Look back at chapter 1 with me. 2 Peter chapter 1 and look at verse 4. 2 Peter 1 verse 4. Peter says, "...by which, having been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust." Do we see either one of those words, corruption or lust, show up in our text in verses 17-22? through They're all over the place. That's the hallmark of the false teachers, that they have an uncontrolled lust. They are corrupted. So there's a contrast between what Peter has called us to and what is the state of the false teachers in verses 19 and 20. His point is this. There is a fundamental difference between those who have trusted in Christ and those who seem to trust in Christ but have now become false teachers. Just like the difference between carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide is one oxygen molecule, so there is a fundamental difference. The difference is this. One is overcome by the corruptions of the world. And the other overcomes and escapes the corruptions of the world. One is overcome by the corruptions of the world, and the other overcomes and escapes the corruptions of the world. Why do we see that? Because by whom a person is overcome, verse 19, by him also he is brought into bondage. That's the thing that masters him. So, chapter 2, verse 20, If, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So verse 21, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Verses 20 and 21 are a good example of the seeds. Remember Mark chapter 4? When Jesus tells the parable of the seeds. And He talks about the sower who goes out to sow. And some of the seed falls on the road and the birds come and eat it. And some of the seed falls on the stony ground. And it springs up but has no root and it withers. Then there's seed that's thrown on thorny ground and it grows up, but the thorns choke out the seed. 
Then there's the seed that falls on the good soil. And it takes root. And it springs up. And it produces fruit. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark 4, verses 18 and 19. He says, These are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the Word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of, richer, uh, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the Word and it becomes unfruitful. The desires for other things. The lusts. For other things. The deceitfulness of riches. Does that sound like, like maybe these false teachers might have been trained in covetous practices? The cares of this world, deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, what do they do? They choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. That appears to be what's taking place in these false teachers here. So Peter concludes, it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness. We need to stop and ask ourselves though, what exactly does Peter mean here in verse 21? In what sense did they know the way of righteousness? In what sense did they know the way of righteousness? Peter seems to indicate that they went through the membership process. They were baptized. They were members of the church. They had signed off on the statement of faith. They even came to the feasts that the other believers of the church came to. They were participating in the activities and events of the church. However, they didn't persevere. At some point, the need to submit to God's authority was something they rebelled against and forsook everything. At some point, the cost of following Christ was overtaken by their desire to attain worldly pleasure. To attain greed. To attain sexual, uh, to fulfill sexual desires. So how should we understand this passage in light of some who claim that we can lose our salvation? Because this is one of those texts that gets kind of prickly. As we consider it and we think through it, it, it kind of gives us, it gives us a sense of rubbing our spiritual nails on a chalkboard. We can be unsettled as we read these verses. Consider this. If Jesus secured actual redemption and forgiveness of sins on the cross, and we saw in Galatians 3.13 that He has, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of grace. So if He secured actual redemption and forgiveness of sins on the cross, and He has... If God promises to keep us for final salvation when Christ returns, and He has, as a matter of fact, Peter writes about that, 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Listen to what he says in that passage. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if Jesus secured actual redemption and forgiveness, and He has, if Jesus If God promises to keep us for final salvation when Christ returns, and He has, then we can't compromise either of those truths when we come to this passage. Peter's not contradicting himself. He doesn't say one thing in 1 Peter 1.5 only to come back now in 2 Peter and and roll back what he said in 1 Peter 1.5. I believe this passage expresses the importance of persevering in our walk with Christ. It enhances the warning Peter gave in 2 Peter 1, verses 10 and 11. Look with me at, that, at those verses, if you would. 2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. Peter says, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This reality gives weight to Peter's command back in 2 Peter 1, 10 and 11. If, if the Christian life is just a, yay, I'm just going to wait till I get to heaven. And it's just float and go through my Christian life. And there's no effort or exertion. Peter's command in verses 10 through 11 is sullied. Why do I need to do that? I can just coast. I can just wait. I can just sit back and trust, and everything will be peachy in the end. But. If Peter's serious about being more diligent to make our call and election sure, for if we do these things, we will never stumble. And if there's, if there's a legitimate possibility that by not doing those things, that you could be overcome again by those things that you said you had potentially escaped from, it enhances this warning. True believers are secure in their salvation in Christ. That, that, is, that is Peter's fundamental belief as he's writing this text. True believers are secure in their salvation in Christ. However, true believers will also persevere in godliness until Christ returns. True believers are those who when Peter says, after giving every effort, add to your faith these things, true believers look at those verses and say, I need to hit my knees and pray and ask God to help. God work these things in me because I want to grow in these things. True believers are those who hear the commands of God and rather than being a stopper for them, they are a motivator for them. Remember Peter's overall point in this letter. His overall point is that he wants these believers, that he wants you and I to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Growing in grace requires knowing Jesus deeply. False teachers had knowledge about Jesus, but they abandoned that 
They turned their back on that. They forsook that for, the, for, for liberty. They scorned the notion that true knowledge of God leads to growing in grace. That is why Peter can say that it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness. Why? Because their judgment will be all the more painful. Think about this. They sat in the same services as those who knew Jesus deeply. They went to the same feasts as those who knew Jesus deeply, but they didn't know Jesus deeply. In our Scripture reading this morning, we saw a similar thing in 1 John 2. Would you flip over with me and as we close into 1 John 2? 1 John 2. Listen to verses 12 through 14. 1 John 2, 12 through 14, and listen for the knowing language. <clears throat> I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known Him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Did you catch how John used overcome in verses 13 and 14? <clears throat> so then John can in 1 John 2.18 write these words, Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So brothers and sisters in Christ, there is some soberingness in this passage. And Peter ends this passage with two vivid illustrations. Look at verse 22. But it has happened to them, false teachers, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. A dog returning to his own vomit. I, I thought that was like a gross exaggeration until I, uh, owned, until I got a dog. That's a true proverb. And you dog owners know that. If your dog does this, you've got to pull them away from that because they will do this. A sow, a pig, having washed to her wallowing in the mire... Yeah, pigs are going to do that. If you give them the option of staying clean or getting back in the mud, which option is a pig going to choose? <laughs> they feel at home in the mud. Even though they might be clean on the outside, it doesn't change their nature on the inside. And in both of these situations, the point of these two illustrations is this. Both of these natural, unclean animals return to what is natural for them. 
even if their circumstances change. The dog will always return to his vomit because his instincts and senses tell him to. He still smells food over there. And if it's food, I want to eat it. A pig will always want to wallow in the mud because it's what he does. These two Proverbs speak to the fundamental nature of the dog and the pig. It would be unlike a dog to not return to their vomit. It would be unlike a pig to not wallow in the mire. You would think to yourself, what is this pig doing? I washed him up and cleaned him up and he's just standing there. There's this huge mud pit in front of, 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 in front of him and he's just looking at it with this confused look on his face like, what are you wanting me to do with this? You would say to yourself, that pig needs to become bacon because he's no longer a pig. There is a fundamental difference. I think it's interesting that, that Peter begins our passage back up in 2 Peter 2, verse 12. These like natural brute beasts is what he calls them. And what does he use at the end in verse 22? He uses examples of natural brute beasts. In that day, dogs were not household pets. They were dirty, disgusting animals that you ran away from and wanted nothing to do with. Pigs were unclean animals and were on the no-no list for Israelites and Jewish people to eat. So as Peter's writing here, he's drawing out two examples of the natural brute beasts. And he's pointing out the fact that, hey, you know what? There's something fundamental about them. That you can take the pig out of the mire, but you can't take the mire out of the pig. The, mire, the pig is going to want to go back into that mire at first chance. So what do these verses mean for us? These verses should, should cause several things to happen in our minds. Three types of people, perhaps, that we could see in, these te- in this text. These verses should sober the true Christian. Following Christ must be your number one priority. So persevere. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Pray and ask for grace to persevere in the midst of those who turn from the truth. Ask for godly grit and tenacity to stay the course. So these verses sober the true Christian. These verses should confront the fake Christian. Because judgment is real. And if you're here this morning and you say you're a Christian, but you're not, you know that your Christianity is not real. The judgment is real. It's coming. Peter tells you you're deceiving yourself. Will you listen to the Word of God and repent and turn to Christ this morning? Will you submit yourself to God's demands on your life? Will you submit yourself to the holy commandment delivered to you? Finally, these verses should challenge the one outside of Christ. Judgment is quickly coming. You don't have the luxury of tomorrow. 
Will you trust in what Christ did on the cross for you and come to Him for salvation? So toxic false teachers. These teachers are filled with toxic character. They're overcome in toxic enslavement. But judgment will come. So may God give us grace to be able to detect and avoid toxic false teaching and persevere in Christ until He returns. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You for the prophetic Word that is more confirmed that we have in Your Word every promise You have made to us and we can stand on every promise of Your Word. May we treasure Your Word. May we trust Your Word. May we live in light of what Your Word tells us to do. May we be faithful to You. May we follow You. May we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.